A lot of interesting things going on over the next couple of days here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I mentioned again that NSN and the American Friends of Bar Ilan University present our live broadcast starting at 11.30 a.m. this coming Monday. We have an amazing Monday lineup in general. Now you could add this for this coming Monday, May the 7th. Malcolm Honline, the, the 2018 Honorary Doctoral Recipient at Bar Ilan, will be delivering a lecture to launch the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. The broadcast here will feature an assortment of star professors and researchers who will join me from Bar-Ilan University. You can hear all of it just by tuning into us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You'll hear all of it, including Malcolm Holmline's lecture that he'll be giving uh, Monday night in Israel. Information? Nothing to do. Go to NahumSiegel.com or tune into the NSN app. The aforementioned Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of major American Jewish organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's great to be the aforementioned. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's a wonderful thing at Barilan, and I was thrilled to see that uh, you're going to be doing a live broadcast. Uh, I hope it'll be interesting. It's going to be a different format than usual with the... a, a, a dialogue between me and the new head of the center, or the head, set, head of the new center. Oh, interesting. But first, I have to give a shout-out to Ephraim Online of Baltimore, my grandson, whose bar mitzvah will be celebrated this Shabbos. Hmm, so you've made a commitment to be in Baltimore this Shabbos. That is true. Just like you were in Great Neck last Shabbos. I hope that went well. That went amazingly well, and a lot of JM and the AM fans were there, and wonderful people, wonderful turnout. Uh, and then next Shabbos, uh, he'll be in Riverdale. Whew. Now what Now what happens tonight and tomorrow? Does anybody approach you and say, Mr. Holmline, we know you're here for your grandson's bar mitzvah, but since you're already here, would you mind addressing this crowd or that crowd for a few minutes? Is that bound to happen at some point tonight? They try. <laughs> but you refuse. <laughs> Rightfully well, so, you refuse. I have to speak at the bar mitzvah. It's an exclusive engagement. <laughs> Understood. Well, you know what everybody wants to hear about, and uh, we are anx- very anxious to hear your analysis and opinion. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu makes this uh, um, amazing revelation to the world on Monday. Uh, many of us have seen the reaction of the uh, uh, President of the United States. He had an immediate reaction, uh, you know, within an hour of Mr. Netanyahu's presentation. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly where to begin with this, but but let, let's try it this way. Many uh, media sources are claiming that Bibi Netanyahu told us nothing new on Monday. What do you say about that? Well, it's uh, remarkable that those media sources seem to have penetrated the Iranian vaults as well and had the information before the Mossad agents were able to get it out. So obviously there are clearly very well-trained operatives because the information that the prime minister was able to share is only a small part of what they have actually uh, they were able to take out the 100,000 or 55,000 pages of, of documents and the 55,000 files uh, contain detailed information which for security and other reasons can't be released and should not be released. What he did just to start was to put the lie to the assurance that the Iranians gave 
to President Obama, to Secretary Kerry, to the Europeans, to everyone else. We will never acquire, build, buy, or otherwise secure nuclear weapons, that they, we don't have a nuclear weapons program, that Fordo was for civilian purposes. All these things we now know are not true. Now, did we assume that they were lying? Yes. But the, the it wasn't the basis of, of an agreement that allowed them now not only to get $150 billion in cash, to sign all sorts of deals, and at the same time to move ahead on the development of their missiles, the, the range, the capacity, the payloads, the their terrorism, their violations of human rights, their aggressions against other countries in the region, and the uh, and the nuclear program with more advanced uh, centrifuges, other things which will all have implications for the breakout, which is now only uh, seven years away. Yeah, understood, and that's not a long time. But here, here's the, I mean, let me give you a couple of examples, uh, and, and maybe I should have said it differently than, you know, he didn't reveal anything uh, new to the world. Uh, there's a news report that says as follows. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's dramatic presentation with his claim that tens of thousands of files proved there was an effort to build and test weapons didn't contain any big surprises for the U.S. intelligence community, according to two United States intelligence officials uh, who told this to NBC News. Okay, so they they considered it no surprises. The New York Times, in its objective reporting on the story the next day, or almost immediately, I should say, because it was online, Mr. Netanyahu did not provide any evidence that Iran had violated the nuclear agreements as it took effect in early 2016. Now, that one, the first one I get, and I think everyone listening gets, that, you know, that's a little bit far-fetched. This one, we need a better answer for, because it, 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 it is correct that he didn't provide any evidence of any activity since the agreement was signed. Is that accurate? Well, we don't know. Because it's, I don't know how does anybody know when we haven't seen it, and they've shared this information. Wouldn't he have mentioned that? With the CIA, well, his implication was, it said Iran lied, that Iran, that Fordo was an ongoing facility, that, because we saw now that it was reopened this week, that the parking lot was full of cars, that people were coming in and out of the facility, which both be shut down and have been put out of use. So in every uh, part of this deal, we know that they were not telling the truth. We know that they were enriching to higher levels, and we thought we know that it was more sophisticated program. What we don't know is that the vast majority of the material could not be shared publicly, could not be made. Uh, the, the technical issues and the, the, the detailed uh, discoveries could not be made public. At you, know, you know, it's funny because it seemed to us, the average person, that he really did go into a lot of detail. It's funny. Yeah, but he went. He did. He went on uh, into some description on a very general level. Mm-hmm. He did not go into to it, and probably would have lost the audience if he started <laughs> going into the great detail of of what uh, nuclear program and what information. But the the um, this is material that they were trying to hide. So the violation, first of all, is that none of this was reported to the IEA. How right. come they didn't have access to this facility? How come they right. didn't even know about this facility? Right. So. It tells you a little bit about the effectiveness of the IE, uh, International Atomic Energy Agency and the aggressiveness or lack thereof of their inspections regime. And the, the fact that you had this stuff being moved from place to place 
in order to make sure it did not fall into any hands or uh, other hands and that they, they sustained it. Why didn't they just destroy it if they, they have no nuclear program? Because they need this information for the future development of the program. So, the, the, you know, you can say that nothing new was... Um, was revealed if they were looking, you know, for some sort of a magic button that uh, unleashed a series of nuclear missiles. Right. But we know that they have. We know that the, the, it's public about what they've done on the missiles, which is not a violation of the JCPOA. The fact that they had a facilities that, that we know that they were on the track and constantly working on a nuclear weapon puts the lie to what they said as the basis of this deal. And we know that that part continued after the deal was signed, or we don't know for sure? No, this is, I don't have dating on it right. as to whether this is uh, from before or after. See, that's what the media is harping on. I understand, on. I right. know, but, it, but it's, it's not relevant I mean, oh, I get that. Right, I get that. But, 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 that, they're, that but, but they're making uh, it relevant. That's the problem. They're making it relevant. Right. They're, 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 they're saying that, you know, hey, this was all before the deal was signed. And I would think that once the deal is signed, the International Atomic Energy Agency should have access to everything. Any, any document of the last 20, 30 years they should have access to, right? If they, if they wanted to. They should theoretically be, right. be, have been given everything that they wanted. Or at least access to it. And and being told of all the facilities and all the places where they have relevant material. Um, do you have any clue how many uh, identical or near identical facilities there are to the one that Netanyahu described? Are, are they all over the place? Are the they storage vaults? Yeah. Well, they obviously have to have some because they were, they move this material from right. between several uh, locations. But again, we don't know how much more exists. The the uh, fact that they were tracking this for some time, for maybe more than a year, and then the opportunity presented itself, I guess, to uh, on the, when they had word of of uh, location and the vaults in which they were being, where the vaults were, in which this was being stored. All right, um, that th- is the really big story. I mean, right. is the is right. the uh, tremendous. Uh, intelligence coup that this represents, and it right. certainly sends a message to Iranian leaders that you had to have a, a pretty good infrastructure for this to to, to have happened. And uh, I mean, I think they got to wake up, or when they go to sleep at night, they keep one eye open. A lot of arrests made uh, after the revelation. A lot of arrests in Iran. Not yet? No, not that we know. Of. Oh, I thought I had read that uh, they had clamped down on a. They had come down. Well, on they a few- clamped down. All the time. I mean, that that is going on. The, the, the internal disruptions and uh, the, the demonstrations continue, even though people don't really report them. Right. Uh, the media doesn't report them, but they are ongoing. All right. Here's where the armchair generals come in. And, you know, I'm king of that department. Of course. Um, and, you know, we, we know we have precedents of how. Uh, of how um, uh, Israeli prime ministers have, have dealt with situations in the past. Not really comparable, I get that, but but still we know what Begin did with Iraq, we know what Olmert and others have done with Syria. I, I mean, wouldn't it have been, I don't know, easier, delivered a better statement or a, a, a more potent message to Iran if Israel would have done this militarily, if they knew where all this storage facility was, or other types of facilities, meaning weapons themselves, wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been uh, I don't know, better or, uh, or, or more of an international message from Israel if they would have gone and destroyed it? Or does this tell us that just like we've always conjectured that Iran is much different 
in terms of trying to infiltrate there militarily or by air than Iraq and Syria. This, again, proves that, that this is a better option than that is. Well, proves that they're vulnerable. And second of all, that there was no point in, in destroying a facility. You want to get your agents out. You don't blow up buildings. And, you know, they, they found out about it before the agents, the Israeli agents, actually left the country. And they were hot on their trail uh, before they got it. They smuggled it out of the country. So the, the, the there was no uh, upside, I think, in trying to destroy that kind of a facility as opposed to the nuclear facilities, which are very heavily guarded, and you know many of them underground, they're, they're probably considered impenetrable, although we now know that everything is penetrable. Can you guess for us how this operation was carried out? Can you guess for us how many people may have been involved and how they, in fact, did get all this material out? That was a, that was a lot of material that he revealed on Monday. And knowing that it's only a small percentage right. of what, of what the, the, the real story and all the information, but you have a, detailed information but you have, they have. But do you have a clue or can you conjecture how they actually got it out? I mean, for those of us you know, who can't get nail clippers on planes, we wonder how do you get a CD library or those types of notebooks out of a, an enemy country? <laughs> well, they had to smuggle it into another country nearby so you can look at the map and figure it out. Right. And uh, from there it was flown to Israel. Unbelievable. And those agents, we assume, are no longer in Iran, or we shouldn't make that assumption? Those agents are probably probably came out together with the material. That doesn't mean that there aren't other agents, because this, this takes a lot of preparation. This takes a lot of, of scouting, of constant monitoring, and that's not the work of one or two people. All right. You know, I'll tell you something. During this week, the yard site of Ellie Cohen, if you don't know who it is, folks, Google him after the show. Uh, we have to remember there are a lot of people you know, putting their lives at risk for the security of the Jewish people. That's right. And, the, and you know, when, we, when a soldier dies, we know it. Some people should visit the memorial to mm-hmm. the uh, fallen security people. And if you go into the buildings of the Mossad or the Shin Bet and you see the display, I was there on um, Yom Karon, and you see the number of men and women who gave their lives in carrying out critical missions, many of which were directly related to the security of Israel and the well-being of the people of Israel. And had they not taken place, history might have taken a different course. Unbelievable. Malcolm Holmline is with us. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world in the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Reminder, Malcolm will be spending Monday with us as well because his live, uh, the live broadcast on Monday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time will feature his lecture in Israel, bar University. He'll be receiving a 2018 honorary doctoral, and he will be uh, speaking about the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America, and will give us an opportunity to speak with a bunch of people from bar in the middle part of Monday. Make sure to tune in, and obviously Monday morning we'll give you more details about that event. All right, so now the second big question. Um, will this influence the President of the United States? We know that uh, Bibi Netanyahu spoke in English, unusual. Uh, in fact, many commentators in Israel found it to be 
I wouldn't say, I shouldn't use the word disturbing or insulting, but it sounded like they were heading in that direction that he would deliver a a, a speech like that and not deliver it first in Hebrew. Uh, but obviously this was uh, intended to be heard by English speakers who would uh, fully understand it. And most are conjecturing that the the one person he was concerned about was President Trump. Will all of this sway the president to change his mind regarding the Iran deal on May the 12th? It could well, and it could give justification for a decision that he is he has already made or is looking to make. The um, the president is facing a very serious decision, as we know. There are different people who weigh in. The indications I would say right now are that he will do he will uh, pull out of the JCPOA, wow. and we have to think of the ramifications. You know, people I know automatically say, "Well, of course, we got to pull out now." In light of this information, but even more broadly, that the deal was a bad deal, and if the Iranians are saying that they refused to do anything to renegotiate, to make concessions, especially about the sunset clause, because it's seven years is nothing, uh, and in the meantime they have developed their centrifuge and other things, which means that their breakout would be very fast, and they would er- er- enrich it to uh, weapons grade very, uh, very quickly as well. So the president... Uh, has to think about various uh, aspects, the economic implications, the relationship with our European allies and others who signed the, the, the deal, right. what it means in the region, would Iran retaliate in some way. I think that there's a lot of bluff on the part of of the Iranians, and right now they do not want an all-out war. They have not yet retaliated as people had anticipated. That doesn't mean it won't come, and I'm not challenging them to do it. Right. But I think the... the um, uh, you know, companies, when having to face a choice of doing business with the American banking system or Iran, the choice will be easy. Iran uh, um, oil exports have already started to fall in anticipation of the of the uh, president's announcement, and the it dropped by about a half a billion, uh, half a million barrels a day, five hundred thousand barrels a day. The, the, the their exports more than doubled after the deal was signed, the JCPOA was signed, and now they're facing uh, real economic pressures inside anyway. The, the economic collapse, the, the, the real, their currency uh, has fallen precipitously. Unemployment is high, so it's not without implications that if the United States says we're going to put sanctions on, we're going to go after European companies and others, uh, they have been adding sanctions along, but if they now, um, it, it, is, it is not just a free ride for Iran, That uh, it's not, a, and it's not just a, a paper deal. These, it has massive implications, and it's not an easy decision. I don't, I don't take lightly the president's uh, decision, uh, and I think it's why they're thinking it through, and they're talking to the, to the, the Germans, French, and British. The Germans are just totally... Uh, out of this uh, wanting to sign and uh, I'm very surprised at Merkel's uh, behavior. Uh, Macron tried to convince him to stay in and to fight for changes, and the British and French have come up with proposals. Uh, the Iranians say will not accept any uh, any additional changes or uh, requirements. That is not true. I think that under a unified approach and real pressure and facing the reality of, of uh, what will happen if, if they don't go along with it, I think that they would. I think they would accept some uh, changes and that the three powers together can, in any event, 
um, implement and add sanctions and other requirements. It is, it is um, obviously fraught with all sorts of implications for what happens in Syria. It could be for what happens in the region. They could strike out in many different ways. Uh, Jordan is very vulnerable. Obviously, Israel, they, they sent the drone into Israel. They have done other things after the um, discovery of, this, uh, of, of Israel's raid. And yet, they're very limited. They do not want to see Hezbollah wiped out. And, you know, in Lebanon, Hezbollah's support is diminished. Uh, they have 80,000 militia who they will gladly sacrifice in Syria to to fight Israel. But their options are also limited. And so far, Russia has made clear that they don't care how many Iranians die, as long as no Russians do, uh, and ha- has not really interfered in uh, Israel's retaliatory strikes or other things. So we have to look at the totality of the picture when we try to assess, or if you put yourself in that position and say, what 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 is, happens to our credibility? Will this impact the North Korean negotiations? Because remember, North Korea and Iran are very close. Will our word be be then, and our commitment to to an agreement if we pull out, then become suspect and people will be reluctant to other countries to sign deals with us? Well, remember the Saudis, the UAE, all of them are watching the United States to see if we will be tough. They all said that the JCPOA was a bad deal at the time. They didn't want us to do it. But we're under the impression that pulling out does show that they were tough. It does, but I'm just saying that the you got to think about the broader picture, how all the ramifications that could come from it. I think that there's growing support to pull out. I don't know whether, let's say, a majority in Congress, where, where they would fall down on this because they, um, uh, you know, they're worried about what the ramifications could be. But on the other hand, I think many of them, they're all sick and tired of Iran. They all know that they've been lying. They all know now for sure that the nuclear program was a reality and the evidence is irrefutable, even if it predates the deal. The evidence is there. It means that they had a nuclear program. It was in place. It has not disappeared. And they, they can go back to it immediately. And the JCPOA is not a sufficient protection as it is written now. By the way, if they do pull out of the JCPOA, uh, do we get any cash back or, or that money's lost forever? Oh, that money's long spent. <laughs> long Hamas, spent. Hezbollah, terrorist operations, the, their activities in South America. You can trace, you know, how uh, the the expansionist activities of of Iran in the region in and way beyond the region in Africa. Uh, they have set up uh, schools uh, under Khamenei's name in 17 countries. They're training thousands and thousands of what they call seminarians. These are African uh, youth who who are being recruited. They set up a recruit center now near Damascus, about five miles away from Damascus, where they're recruiting young uh, Shiites and others in, in Syria to join their militias and, and to their uh, uh, groups. They have obviously developed weapons and have been providing these cargo planes have been flying into uh, Syria on a regular basis, and U.S. security's expressed concern. Israel's obviously expressed concern and maybe even took care of that some of the deliveries didn't reach the uh, intended uh, recipient, which is Hezbollah, and and more and more sophisticated weapons, both for their own use and for Hezbollah's use, and that's why Israel's strike last week was so important, uh, so much so that it registered on the Richter scale, because they hit 
an underground facility where perhaps 200 missiles were being stored. Hmm. By the way, I'm sorry for using you as a fact checker, but but who better, frankly? The Times, when it, uh, when it first reported on Monday's um, reaction of the president to Netanyahu's presentation, so they write the following. Um, in se- this is what Trump said, in seven, the president. In seven years, that deal will have expired and Iran will be free to make nuclear weapons. They claim Mr. Trump said this incorrectly stating the terms of the deal. While some restrictions on Iran are relaxed starting in about seven years, Iran cannot make nuclear fuel until 2030, and it is never permitted to make nuclear weapons as signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which bans it from weapons production. Is that accurate? That is accurate that they signed the NPT, but they, they're talking about pulling out of the NPT as well, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And what the president said was uh, uh, was correct. And they know, you know, to say that because Iran signed a deal means they're going to adhere to it when we know that they have not adhered to anything that they signed in any of the deals, nor their words, uh, their commitments as members of the United Nations. And, and they are supposedly under restrictions in the Security Council on ballistic missile development, on, the, on the, their aggressiveness and the support for terrorism. So... The track record is clear. So, uh, you know, for people to say, you know, it's like Willie Sutton saying that, that he's not robbing a bank. <laughs> right. Well, we know that, that that's what he does. Yeah. That's him. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to the other big issue. Uh, and I'm glad someone pointed out to me. I thought it was an op-ed piece, but then someone uh, uh, pointed out to me. It was actually an editorial. The New York Times is calling for the resignation of uh, Mahmoud Abbas. It did. It's a remarkable uh, development because they said that they think that they hope his vile comments, which uh, for those who don't know, he did say that essentially the Holocaust was a fault of the of the Jews, right. and saying because of their banking practices. And if you go, the more detail you know about what he said, the more vile it is. And uh, I mean, it's not only Holocaust denial; it's Holocaust glorification and it's exoneration of the Nazis and saying that the onus falls on the Jews because of their social behavior and other things. Um, today, he issued some sort of uh, nandy-pandy, wimpy statement saying, well, if anybody's offended, I'm really sorry. Right. But we have to remember that he wrote his Ph.D. thesis on Holocaust denial. I mean, it was a Holocaust denial thesis. Uh, he has often tended to towards statements and, and things that were in the and especially his last rambling speech like this one at the Palestinian National Council also incorporated anti-Semitic comments. The, he was reelected at the meeting this week. As, as you know, he refuses to face the electorate, so he gets elected by the National Council, which is the highest body of the PLO. And he just continues in his sham uh, position and not having ever been responsive. Uh, at least he's in the, what, 13th year of a four-year term huh. and, uh, and gets away with it. Now he went too far. So people say, well, he's 83, and he's, if this is what you believe, I don't care what your age is, it's going to come out, and it comes out and says this is what this guy's really about. And the warnings and the statements about him being a Holocaust denier, et cetera, just are reinforced and, and reiterated once again. So, and, and it can't be dismissed. People should not put these things on the side when uh, the leader of who's supposed to be a negotiating partner. So that rules it out. And, and the fact that the New York Times came to this conclusion. Yeah, boy. And, you know, the New York Times had actually some good coverage one day of the last 
last Shabbos, I think, of Gaza, explaining what the people there, the terrorists, were doing, throwing Molotov cocktails with guns, flashing guns, um, you know, the the kites with the firebombs on them, um, IEDs, other explosive devices, and really gave a, a much more accurate account, unfortunately, than some of the other newspapers. Wow. Well, even a broken clock is right twice a day. That's exactly. Um, but then he revert for true to form later on. Tell me about this. Uh, you know, we always talk about the creativity and ingenuity of the enemy. Tell me about these fire kites. These, these are very dangerous. And, you know, and usually Fridays we ask you in general if there's any reports of action on the Gaza border. But this was uh, this was dominating the news of Gaza uh, this week. I mean, the, these these devices, uh, if you'd call it that, these makeshift uh, fire kites have the potential to cause tremendous damage. They set fields on fire. They set fire to a factory building, destroyed it, actually, uh, because these are, uh, you can send over many, and the, they ca- carry essentially Molotov cocktail-type devices. You can have a bottle with gas, but it's a flame, and when it hits, it just sets on fire whatever it touches or wherever it lands. So Israel obviously can take these down. There, there are methods and ways that uh, Israel can remove them. They can use drones. They can try to anticipate it. But, you know, when you're fighting on so many fronts and you you have to watch people who try to penetrate yesterday, yesterday late, there was a guy well-armed who was trying to penetrate the, the border. and They are able to detect if somebody is armed and they eliminated the threat. But you've had numerous attempts. They have what they call a brigade, uh, the wire cutters brigade, where people go who who are trained just to cut through the fence and to uh, enable people to get through and to carry out whatever nefarious activities they have in mind. Uh, the, the crowds have diminished, and you see the condemnation about the human shields at the United Nations and uh, elsewhere. So that the you know most of the Europeans you know are quiet about it. Uh, can imagine if if anybody else used children and sent them to the front ground to to die or to be hurt because they know Israelis will be very reluctant to shoot a child. But in the meantime, of those who have been hit, more than 80 percent are Hamas members or Hamas terrorists, and they are continuing to incite. They send buses around to recruit people and bring, pick them up to bring them to the to the fence in the area. And I think we can anticipate this week with the coming dedication of the Israeli embassy and the, the um, celebration uh, of the anniversary. And they call it Nakba Day, the day of um, the tragedy, uh, that the, and the fact that you'll have American officials and others coming there. We can anticipate that they will uh, expand their activity. By the way, on the end, are you planning on just staying there already at this point? Once you get to Israel this weekend, or you're not sure yet. And no, I have to be back the next day to give a speech at a dinner <laughs> where my some of my children are being honored, the Dworkins and. Uh, and at the Ferris Israel, so I have to. I'm coming right back from the ceremony, and um, I will be participating in an event at the Israeli Embassy in Washington, where they're honoring 70 for 70, and I'm one of the people who will receive, who's a recipient. So I thought maybe that that would be a better place to be. Very nice. The, that's the one where they're um, uh, honoring the memory of Zev Wolfson, among other people? Yeah, he's one of those, yes. Very cool. M- most of the recipients, I think, are, no, are not necessarily with us anymore, but right. uh, it's, it's a very nice gesture to, and, to people. And back to Gaza for a second, you know, not, not, not to alarm anybody and or start rumors, although, 
you know, there are people, you know, for those of us who are in contact with people in Israel, especially those with kids in the army, etc., there is a growing concern, and we've seen when things, unlike the North, where I don't think you could say this definitively, when things heat up on the Gaza border, eventually it seems there's no choice but to actually go in with some type of ground presence. I mean, would you say that's more likely now than a couple of weeks ago, or you wouldn't say that yet? No, I wouldn't say that yet. I, that, that there's a ground invasion. I think initially this is anything will be done by air. But I will tell you that the Israelis I speak to, officials, uh, military people, have been saying to um, people that uh, it's not a question of if but when. Yeah. They call it the war in the north. As you know, tanks have been moved up, that they are on a state, it's a constant state of uh, high alert. I know that areas have been uh, uh, sky space has been closed to flights, helicopters, other planes. So uh, I think that the the concern that and the anticipation that Iran will either act through one of its many proxy options, the, the militia groups that it has there through Hezbollah, they can hit up things directly with Israel, some think that Jordan is more vulnerable, uh, they may launch missiles. There, there are many things that are open to them. They don't want to give Israel an excuse to be able to fire back, and there's an election coming up in Lebanon, and Hezbollah is not too popular right now anyway, so this could uh, escalate. You know, they don't want to escalate the tensions, so they're holding off, and I certainly think they want to hold off until after May 12th, after the deadline on JCPOA, because they don't want to prejudice maybe the Europeans or others uh, into um, rejecting the deal as well. And still no indication of the president will be in Israel on May the 14th, right? Still nobody knows. It has not been, no, it has not been determined yet, and I think... I'm not sure that it's very likely at this point, but it, it was still it was under consideration still. And I got to sneak this in before we wrap up. Uh, how do you reconcile the following? In, um, in last week, Durham, North Carolina, became the first city in the United States to officially adopt BDS as policy, i.e., they will not allow their police to train with Israel's police force, while in South Carolina, they became the first U.S. state to pass legislation to fight anti-Semitism on campus. How do you, how do you reconcile our neighbors to the South? Yeah, what a difference a few miles can make. <laughs> but, but first of all, the, most of the officials have come out and, and rejected the BDS uh, campaign. I think that uh, it's not likely to be implemented, and as in many other campuses or cities or places where it's introduced, it fails. Uh, sometimes we don't, and not enough attention is paid to it locally or early, early enough. Uh, again, the economic impact of BDS is not great. It, it, it is the political campaigns that are associated with it, the lies, the distortions uh, that. Uh, are associated with the, the campaign, and it tells us again that we have a big job to do in the United States to make the case for Israel. We should not take it for granted. We have an administration that is extremely uh, friendly. We see embassies, Guatemala moving, others, to, uh, the Paraguayans are now talking about it, others are talking about it. Uh, the president of Guatemala will be there on the, the two days after the U.S. dedicates to, to dedicate their own uh, embassy. But at the same time, we see that a quarter billion dollars is being put into Jerusalem by the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, wow. that they are investing in, in, in trying to determine the future of Jerusalem. And it's used by the Watts. They buy property. They they try to create facts uh, 
on the ground. Uh, there was another indication about it, about the situation with, with Iran when Morocco broke diplomatic relations with them because they were supplying weapons to the Polisario through, uh, with, uh, through Hezbollah. And, of course, Iran denied it. But here you have proof it's an Arab country, a Muslim country, that has evidence that Iran has been working to undermine and to stoke violence in, in the region. We know that they're trying to do it in, in all over Africa and Asia and Latin America. We, we have to look at the total picture to understand the nature of the danger that we face and why people can't just say, well, we should overlook this or this is not that significant or right. what the real ramifications uh, are of the... Uh, of the actions they're taking and the danger that we face. So Israel faces very uh, uh, serious issues on the north and the south, and if, if violence breaks out, Israel would have to perhaps fight on at least two two fronts. Thank God the Egyptian front is quiet, and Jordan uh, most likely would be quiet, quiet unless they try to do something to uh, undermine it. Uh, I don't think that a war is imminent right now. I do think that violence could escalate. I do think that you know, Israel's alert is more than justified, and we have to sustain our efforts here to make sure that the uh, various security assistance bills, the $3.3 billion plus the money for the missile defense, uh, are all uh, passed by Congress. I think there is broad support. I think the members of Congress took the report that Netanyahu released very seriously, and members have been invited to see it, and I think that that w will help. But all of us have a role to play to ensure Israel's security, and that is to make sure that our senators and others vote the right way and that this assistance is forthcoming. Unbelievable. So many things to think about. Uh, Monday, we'll have a chance to speak again when you're live from Bar Ilan, and I thank you for that. Have a oh, mazal tov on the Bar Mitzvah, and have a, a wonderful Shabbos. Thank you. I'll give, uh, I'll give all the fans in Baltimore your regards. I hope you will. We have a great following down there. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday's weekly update here at JM in the AM.